Now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, continuing our study in this epistle. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, strengthen us with your word. I pray that this time in your word would be profitable, that I would be a capable messenger of it. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, Father, that I might deliver these things clearly. Fill us all with your Holy Spirit so we might receive your word and the instruction that you have put before us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. When I was in the fifth grade, I got it in my head for some reason that I wanted to join the school band. I don't really remember what got me interested or why I wanted to join. Uh, And I didn't know what instrument I wanted to play. I just wanted to join the band. So I went to the band room to sign up and the school band director assigned me an instrument that nobody else was playing at that time. Uh, An instrument, in fact, that I'd never even heard of. He gave me a French horn. He says it would be a great help if you would get started on this. We need French horns in the band. But I I had never even heard of a French horn. I couldn't name any great French horn players. I mean, we listened to Elvis Presley and Hank Williams in my house, and I never heard a French horn on the Grand Ole Opry. So I didn't know know it existed. But I left school that day with this big plastic case containing this instrument that had uh, yards and yards of tubing in the middle of it, and a big old horn on, on one end, and a book of basics. Uh, with me. So I took it home and I started practicing and I met with the band director once a week to help me progress. And after a few weeks, he gave me a piece of music that the band was going to play uh, at the, uh, probably the spring uh, music festival at the spring concert. But I was going to practice my part all alone for a while. Have you ever heard the French horn part of a, of a, of a, of a, of a symphony or a, or a, or a, a a composition. The French horn part, if you hadn't heard it, is usually just a long monotone tone separated by rests. Uh, It didn't even sound like music when I was practicing this all by myself. I drove my parents nuts practicing in my room. And it was like, wah, two, three, four, five, wah, wah. That's the French horn part. That's what it sounds like. No melody. And it wasn't until the first time that I got together with the rest of the band that we all played together the parts that we were working on individually. And I realized, hey, this kind of goes together. This kind of goes with everybody else. I'm providing the background or the foundation for the trumpets and the flutes to do their thing. Now, after several years of playing, I began to realize that there were class distinctions within an orchestra or a brass band. The flutes and the trumpets believe that they are superior to everybody else because they get the melody, they get the lead. In a string orchestra, the violinists believe themselves to be much more superior than the violas or the cellos. In fact, there are pages and pages of viola jokes written by violin players. I'll give you just a couple. What's the difference between a viola and an onion? 
no one cries when you cut up a viola. <laughs> Why is a viola solo like a bomb? By the time you hear it, it's too late to do anything about it. <laughs> now, I, I, I raise these jokes tenderly and compassionately. My, you know, my wife plays the viola and she's, she's heard them all. And as a French horn player, I too found myself in a backup role, never getting the solo, never getting the spotlight. Now, most of this teasing that goes on between musicians is good natured. The reality is though, that you would never want to hear an all flute orchestra. God forbid that you would ever go to an all flute or all violin orchestra. That would be shrill and squeaky. That would be an ear piercing cacophony. No rock band can be made up of all lead guitars. I, I heard a folk band one time. They had like six guys all playing acoustic guitar, all playing the rhythm. It just sounded, it just was too much. Like, once you get past two or three guitars, it's just all the same. No, you need, you, need the other, you need the other instruments. You need a rhythm guitar and a bass and drums and keyboard. The, the lead instruments depend upon the other instruments. They don't sound right without them. And it would just be arrogance to say that the other instruments are unnecessary. The problem that Paul now begins to confront in Corinth is that within the orchestra, that is the church, there are some instruments who believe themselves to be superior to the others. And as a result, the whole symphony is being played out of time. It's being played out of tune and the sound is all out of balance. Now, we've already seen how Paul has confronted their disunity and their schisms. As I said last week, they've drawn lines where God hasn't drawn lines. They have erased some lines that God has drawn. They've confused male and female roles. They've erected social and economic barriers in the church. Now added to that, this whole other issue, this whole other matter of the fact that some of them are exercising spiritual gifts and others are exercising other spiritual gifts. And some believe that there's a hierarchy to the whole thing that makes one group more important than the other. So Paul wrote this church to the um, he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth in the years between the ascension of Jesus and the completion of the New Testament. And in this intermediate period of time, there were temporarily many miraculous signs to accompany and confirm the gospel. We read about these during Jesus' ministry. We read about these in the book of Acts. The apostles and others were given the power to heal and the power to cast out demons and to speak in foreign languages and to prophesy. But this was a unique era and it wasn't meant to last forever. In fact, we may tend to think that the Bible is full of signs and miracles of the kind that Jesus and Peter did. Um, the, and, and by miracle or sign, I'm talking about a suspension of the ordinary course of nature, which God can do anytime that he wants to. God has, has built certain rules into creation and uh, everything follows those rules. Ordinarily, God can suspend those rules whenever, whenever he wants to. And I'm talking about the suspension of the ordinary course of nature as a, as a miracle. That's what I refer to as a miracle. So if you think the sunrise is a miracle, I say, well, yeah, it's absolutely, the sunrise is extraordinary. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Look at God's wonderful power and look at God's faithfulness that he caused the sun to rise yet again today. I am blown away by God's providence. But strictly speaking, I wouldn't call it a miracle, right? God has built the world in such a way that this is the way things work. The birth of a child is an absolutely 
unbelievable, incredible, mind-blowing thing that God does. But this is the way that God has built the world. So if you, if you say, oh, it's such a miracle, I know what you're saying. And I agree with you in the wonder and the beauty and the glory of childbirth. It is absolutely stunning. It is wonderful. But when I'm using the word miracle now, I'm talking about the suspension of the ordinary way that God runs things, that he, um, uh, he's always making, as C.S. Lewis said, God is always making um, water into wine. Usually it takes about six months for God to turn water into wine. One time it took a minute, right? One time it, did, it happened in an instant that God changed water into wine. And that's what I'm talking about. God is always doing extraordinary things sometimes and in certain periods he did miraculous things. And, and going back to what I was saying, we assume that uh, everybody who lived in the Bible days, that everybody healed somebody or that everybody raised the dead or that everybody turned bread into, um, uh, you know, multiplied bread and, and fishes. We assume that the Bible is, is, is full of that kind of thing, but that really isn't the reality. There are three distinct periods of miracles in the Bible. There were the days of Moses leading the people of Israel, which was about 40 years. There are the days of Elijah and Elisha, who each had a ministry of about 40 years long. And there was the time between the start of Jesus' ministry and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, a period of about 40 years. Outside of these three periods, God was working. God was doing extraordinary things on behalf of his people. He was doing amazing things, just like he does today. And the wonder is, in the Bible, we get the behind-the-scenes picture of what's going on and why it's happening. But outside of Moses, Elijah and Elisha, and the period between the coming of Jesus and the end of the canon of the New Testament, outside of those three periods, there isn't the kind of abundance of miracles that we see um, in those periods. Where are the miracles that David worked? Did God work out extraordinary provinces, providences on behalf of David? Absolutely. Where are the miracles David worked? Where are the miracles Joseph and Ezra and Nehemiah and, and Ruth and Esther? Uh, did, where are the miracles that they worked? Um, so why don't we see the kinds of things we see during Moses during the time of David? It be, it's because these, these kinds of things happen in specific times in history. So the, so the history that the Bible gives us, it, it isn't full of the miraculous in the sense of raising the dead and healing the sick, so much as the Bible is full of the, the stories of people who struggle with sin, people who stand up to oppressors, who work to build the kingdom through ordinary means. All the while, the Lord is providentially guiding them and protecting them and providing for them. God works wonders, but... The people themselves are not um, directly working these wonders. So, so in, in, in spite of this idea that the miraculous gifts were to be normative for the church, um, this, this idea has become widespread, of course. Um, many Christians don't see these things relegated to three distinct periods in history but they expect to have these kinds of things happen all the time. And, and it can develop a kind of Christianity based on experiences, not so much on concrete doctrines uh, or, or how you live or how you uh, please God. And, and on top of that, it can also engender a kind of ingratitude for God's ordinary providences by always looking for the spectacular. We miss God's ordinary providences. And, and it can also create a, a kind of divide in the church between those who believe they have special access to the power of the Spirit 
and those who do not. And it's the very kind of divide that Paul is working to correct in Corinth. So he's writing within this context. He's writing in one of those three big periods where these uh, special, miraculous, spiritual manifestations of power are evident and around and alive in the church. And writing into this context, he says, we'll take it verse by verse for chapter 12. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Um, first, it's notable that he's writing to a church made up mostly of non-Jewish Greek Christians. But he says you were Gentiles. In, in other words, now you're something else. You Christians are something else. The old Jew-Gentile distinctions have been dissolved and, and really don't matter anymore. And he takes this opportunity to reinforce that message. And then he writes, when you were Gentiles, you were carried away to these dumb idols. Worshippers of idols get carried away in this ecstatic state. They speak nonsense. They fall down on the ground. The, the, the first plank of his argument is that there's nothing particularly Christian about ecstatic spiritual experience. You've had experiences when you were idolaters, but ecstatic experiences are not the fabric of the Christian faith. Verse 3, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one who's speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God is going to blaspheme the Son of God. The Christian faith is all centered on Jesus. It's all focused on Jesus. So you don't ever move beyond Jesus. You never get too mature for Jesus, which, which they may have been trying to do in their various practices. Again, we're reading half a conversation. So we're, we're trying to figure, what are you addressing here? What are you getting to? Uh, and so at the very least, we can see all these spiritual gifts are intended to bring glory to Jesus. They never oppose him, nor are they intended to bring attention and glory to the one who is given the spiritual gift. And then he goes on to say, it's only by the Spirit that anyone can say Jesus is Lord. Now, of course, anybody can mouth those words. Anybody can just say it. But, but what Paul is writing is this, that this confession, Jesus is Lord, can be made with full meaning and faith only under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So, if every Christian has confessed Jesus as Lord, then every Christian has been enabled to do that by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, every Christian has the indwelling, the filling, the guiding of the Holy Spirit. There, there aren't two tiers of Christians, one with the Holy Spirit and one without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All Christians have been filled with the Holy Spirit. So verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Even though everyone has different gifts and different talents and different opportunities and different ministries and activities, there's one Spirit, one Lord, one God. You catch the members of the Trinity in there. One Spirit, one Lord Jesus, one God the Father. Lots of gifts given to us by the members of the Trinity, but one body, just as there are three members of the Godhead, three persons of the Trinity, but one unified God. And that's the way these various giftings are supposed to work. They're to complement each other as they all come from the same source, just as there's no competition in the Trinity, neither is there competition in the church. 
Now, now he lists the specific gifts, some specific gifts. Verse 7. But the manifestations of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. There have been several attempts to systematize and define these various gifts and delineate, okay, which ones were only present during the New Testament era, which ones continue, which ones have ceased but have parallels in the modern church. They still have present-day equivalents, which makes this all confusing uh, for me. And I wonder if we're really approaching it the right way when we do that. Because in his epistles, Paul gives four different lists of gifts and callings. In fact, he, he gives two lists in the same chapter uh, of, of offices and gifts. There's, there's one here and one at the end. There's a different list in Romans 12. There's another list in Ephesians 4. The only gift or office that's listed in all four lists is prophecy. So it, it speaks to the great diversity and bounty of gifts given to the church by the Holy Spirit, but they may not be easily systematized or, or, or held in uh, definition. John Chrysostom uh, preached on this text in the fourth century. And on, on the sermon, on his, in his sermon on 2 Corinthians 12, Chrysostom said, this passage is obscured because of the cessation of these gifts. He says this passage is obscured to us because of the cessation of these gifts. He said these things used to occur, but no longer take place. So even 300 years after this was written, it wasn't entirely clear to preachers and theologians how these things worked because they weren't being practiced in the church and they weren't recognized. They weren't happening any longer. In Augustine in 520, he was asked, why does nobody speak in tongues anymore today? And his answer was, the testimony of temporal sensible miracles was given in the former days to be the credential of the first beginnings of the church. And he says, Augustine says, the church first spoke in tongues as a sign to Israel that it would spread to all the nations and speak in the various languages of the world. Now the sign of the Spirit's work is our love for one another. So that's, that's in 520. So very early in the church, there's this sense that not only was there no continuing expectation of the miraculous, the way that it happened between the coming of Jesus and the end of the New Testament canon and the destruction of the old world in AD 70. So the, the sense that not only was there no continuing expectation, but that these gifts were a temporary sign for a specific people at a specific point in time. And since there has been no continual practice or tradition that gives us an example of these things that, that clarifies what they are, there's no definitive understanding that we can depend on and say, oh yeah, this is how this works and this is how, what it looks like. And here's a faithful application of this gift. So with Chrysostom, I come to this list with more questions than answers. The first gift that Paul mentions is word of wisdom. And the second one is word of knowledge. Now we know what knowledge is and we know what wisdom is. 
but I can't be quite certain about what, what does a spiritual, a, a special spiritual manifestation of wisdom or knowledge look like? What, what, is, what is a word of knowledge? What is a word of wisdom? Uh, perhaps these gifts had to do with instruction or preaching of the word in the, in the days before the Bible was completed, before the gospels were all put together, before they had all of Paul's letters and the other epistles. Instruction still has to take place. So perhaps the Spirit illumined the minds of certain people in a special way and gave them the ability to put it all together and to teach it. Like evidently Paul had and James and Peter when they wrote the, the New Testament. Then he mentions faith. This is the third gift in the list, the third spiritual gift. Now, we all know what faith is, and we all know that faith is a gift, but what kind of special faith were some people given in contrast to the common faith that all believers have? Perhaps some people had extraordinary confidence or steadfastness in the, in the face of persecution. They've got this uncommon courage and, and faith. Again, I, we, we've got words and we've got terms, but the Holy Spirit didn't also give us definitions, which is another reason that I think that we, we can't come to the scriptures and say, okay, here's what God wants you to do with a word of knowledge or with a word of, um, uh, uh, yeah, with a word of wisdom. This is exactly what you're supposed to do and here's how it works. Um, so we just have to under, try to understand what, what these are. Fourth and fifth uh, in this list are healings and working of miracles. And we do see these demonstrated throughout the Gospels and throughout Acts. And they were always noteworthy, amazing events. These were not things, these healings and these miraculous acts in, in the Gospels were not something that you could easily imitate by using tricks. People weren't just a little bit healed from some vague thing. You know, I've got, I've got ringing in my ears and, and I'm healed. Or I've got, I've got kind of a crick in my neck and, oh, you're healed. No, these were lame men who everybody saw. They, that, that guy doesn't walk. We know that. We've seen, we pass by him every day for years and we know he doesn't walk. And now he's running and skipping down the middle of the street. That's, that's identifiable. That's certifiable. That is incredible. And that is remarkable. This blind man who is blind from birth, we all know that he is blind. Now he can see. You see, these are not nebulous things. These are not um, uh, strained or, or, or hard to define things. When the Holy Spirit uh, moved on men to work these kinds of miracles, it was undeniable. It was, un, um, it, you know, uh, it was very easy to see that God had worked in a miraculous way, not just a little bit. Um, the, sixth, the sixth thing is prophecy or inspired speech. Uh, sometimes prophecy, when we think of the Old Testament prophets, it's foretelling the future. But most of the time, prophecy seemed to be speaking God's word in an authoritative way that calls for faith and repentance. So even, even the Puritans used uh, the word prophesy for preach. Uh, it was a synonym for preach for the Puritans. And I, 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 think, it's, I think it's good. You see, so uh, that's why some of the contemplation on these things is what are the modern day equivalents? What are, what are the kinds of things that God is using today in his church. The seventh thing is the discerning of spirits. The seventh gift is the discerning of spirits. And again, what, what is this? We have to ask and think. It might have something to do with the practice of casting out demons. But throughout this list, we have the sympathy of Chrysostom who says, we just don't know. And he lived 300 years after these things were evident. And we live uh, 2,000 years after them. The eighth and ninth is the speaking of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. 
This is one that we have demonstrated for us in the Bible. We can see how this works on the day of Pentecost. There are some people speaking in different languages, and there were some hearing and understanding the languages, and it was all a gift of the Spirit. By the way, it wasn't necessary. Paul didn't have to, I'm sorry, Peter didn't have to preach, and the apostles didn't have to preach in all of these various tongues on that day. They could have spoken in Aramaic, and everybody would have understood them. They could have preached in Greek, and everybody would have known what they were saying. But it was a sign to Israel. In, in Isaiah 28, 11, there's um, a, a curse that, that because of Israel's disobedience, they're going to hear the word of God spoken to them in foreign tongues. That was a curse on Israel, knowing your time's up. When you hear God's word being spoken in another tongue, it's over. The lights are going out for Israel. And so this is the sign. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that because of their disobedience, they're going to hear God's word spoken in foreign tongues. And, and in a sense, in, in that way, the gospel is still being spoken in tongues. I'm speaking in tongues. I'm not speaking in Hebrew. I'm not speaking in Greek or Aramaic. I'm speaking in English, uh, a language that didn't even exist in the first century. And this uh, ongoing spread of the gospel through different tongues is also a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy to, uh, to Israel. Uh, that means that if you're going to hear the word of God, Israel, you're going to have to learn another language to do it because your time's up, your culture's over, your, your time is gone. And that was, that was the fulfillment of that. So uh, if, if tongues were really being spoken today by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is also important to note, just based on this text, that not everyone would have the gift and it wouldn't be necessarily something you could have if you wanted. Verse 11 says, one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So it's up to the Holy Spirit. So the idea that everyone should and ought to do any one of these things or all of them. And if you don't, then you're a second tier Christian. That's just not consistent with the context here. Well, the reason that Paul gave the church this list of spiritual gifts was to show the diversities of, of ministries within the church and yet to remind them that they are all under one Holy Spirit. They all have the same source for all of these gifts. And there's no sense in thinking that one person is any better than the other because of some particular gifting. Uh, we think today of the way that the Lord has equipped us with particular callings and particular attributes. And you all have different gifts. Some of you are gifted in areas that other people struggle in. And you are gifted in areas that other people uh, struggle in or are weak in. But he's put us all together in the body to strengthen each other and to complement each other. Let's say that, for example, there's a person who is really good at showing hospitality. There's another person who's really good at giving wise counsel. There's another who's amazing at communicating the gospel to his friends and co-workers. There's the person who's equipped to serve with his hands and to help people out and, and, and give himself skillfully to, to serve people. And you could think of a dozen other gifts and faculties and things that God has given us. The temptation is to think that the thing that you do really well is the thing that everybody else ought to be doing. And when the fact is, if, if we were all academic theologians, who would cook for the sick? Who would counsel the grieving? It's obvious that we have different strengths. We all have our place. And that's what Paul illustrates so beautifully in the next section, verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. 
For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not of the eye, or or because I'm not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. By giving us this image of the church as a body, Paul's doing several things. First, he's letting us know that Christians have gifts which must contribute to the overall life of the church. We have tubas and French horns and violas and triangles and saxophones, and we have flutes and we have trumpets, and all are essential. We can't live, we can't make music without a single one of you. It would be bad. It would be something would be missing. Every member has something important to contribute and everyone belongs. The the body, the human body's diversity of parts is not an accident of evolution. It's its very essence that we have different parts. It takes a lot of parts to make up a body and one part all by itself is dead. A a hand by itself can't be kept on life support, a foot or an ear. It's, it's, it's dead. Uh, The other thing he's doing here is he's warning us against pride or jealousy. If you are a foot, don't wish that you were a hand. If you're an ear, don't be jealous of the eye. If you are the eye, don't be proud because you would be severely handicapped without the ear or the foot. We're working toward unity, not uniformity. We want to be unified in our diversity. Thirdly, we see how ridiculous the pull toward uniformity looks. Let me, let me read this again in verse 18. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? If all of the body were a foot, again, that would be ridiculous. If all of the body were a nose, that would be insane. But, but in spite of this, there's this idea that persists that, that I can't be ministered to by someone who's not just like me. I can't be ministered to in a context apart from people who are in my same station in life, who are my age, who are in my circumstances. I must be ministered to in an environment and in a context of people who are just like me. And if I'm not surrounded by people my age, then I'm not in an environment where I can thrive. How is that consistent with what Paul is teaching here? How is that consistent? That's just a room of big toes, right? That's just, a, that's just a room of fingers. When I was a young single man, I was about 22, 23, 24, all of my friends were twice my age. Everybody I knew, everybody I was close to was twice my age when I was a young man in my 20s. All of my friends had wives and kids, and I spent time with them learning how to be a husband, learning how to be a father. And their kids called me Uncle Dwayne. And still to this day, one or two of them, that's, that's, what they, that's how they remember me. That's what they would call me. Being around them, being around people older than me helped me grow up. And at the same time, I was a big brother to people five or 10 years younger than me. I had virtually no people my same age in my life. And I am way better off because of it. You have to have the whole body to be a whole person. 
That's what he's teaching. Another dimension of what Paul is condemning is this attitude that, if, again, if I'm really good at something and I believe it's really important, then everybody else has to share that emphasis or else it invalidates what I do somehow. Say, say that you find your calling, you really find your niche in ministering to men who are coming out of prison and trying to transition back into normal life. That is your calling. That is your goal. Those are the people that you love and who you are skilled to serve. That's what you want to do. Let's just, just put a pin in that and say that's who you are. Or, or uh, if you can't identify with that, say you're really good at throwing parties in your neighborhood and once a month you you open up your, uh, your, your grill and you, you put dogs and burgers down and you invite people in your backyard and you share the love of, of Jesus that way with your neighbors. That's really good. Whatever it is that you're really good at, God bless you, wonderful, I'm thankful, but don't make the mission of the church about that one thing that you prefer to do, that one thing that you're good at, and tell everybody else that they really don't care about the Great Commission because they aren't doing the one thing that you just happen to be gifted at and enjoy doing. We love you. Keep doing what you're doing so we can do these other things over here. We, we don't want to be a room full of noses, right? We don't want to be a room full of elbows. That's not, that's not the picture. Verse 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on those we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This is another one of those areas like we saw a couple of weeks ago where Paul starts off with the metaphor and then he talks about the reality and then he goes back to the metaphor and back to the reality. And uh, he's, he's doing this wonderful mixing of the human body and of the body of Christ within the same, uh, within the same section. So what we see here is that the unity of the body remains in both suffering and in honor. The suffering of any one part of the body means the whole body suffers. It is impossible for one part of the body to be in pain and for the rest of the body to be at peace. At the same time, when one member of the body is honored, the whole body shares the joy. It's impossible for in your frame, in your physical body, it's impossible for your bodies to rival one another. And the fact that there are rivalries in the body of Christ is quite ridiculous. Paul desires that every Christian in the church value every other Christian and to care for each other. The way that a hand would bandage the injured foot, the way that the feet would carry the broken arm to the hospital. Have you ever noticed the fact that you really don't wash your hands? You just stand and watch while your hands wash each other. (laughs) That the body cares and takes care of the other members and the other parts of the body. And implying this, we also have to think beyond the walls of the sanctuary of, of our congregation to our city, to our nation, to the world. How do we bandage up the broken and hurting parts in other parts of the body of Christ? How do we rejoice with Christians who are around the world celebrating? The whole, the whole, this whole section must be applied locally and globally. Verse 27, Um, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. 
And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do, y'all, do, do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Remember I said there's another list of offices and gifts that differs from the previous one. Here it is. And it also differs from those lists in Romans and Ephesians. We recognize in the church today the ordained offices of pastor, elder, and deacon, as well as many who function in other roles, teachers, musicians, counselors, theologians, missionaries, evangelists, administrators, ministers of mercy, many, many others. What we have and what we've been given by the Holy Spirit is this rich, diverse complement of skills and talents that the Lord has given for the church for the work of the ministry. And yet none of these are to be a source of pride to the person who holds them. There's no hierarchy that makes any one person any more powerful or important than the other, but we all submit to one another and serve each other and earnestly desire the best gifts which he's going to tell us about in the next chapter. The sinful human heart, however, can turn just about anything into a source of pride. We are inclined to love ourselves and promote ourselves to the point that we never want anybody to be ahead of us in anything. We're always looking back to make sure that no one's catching up to us in all the areas we think are important and looking forward in jealousy to the people who are ahead of us, who are more gifted, more blessed, more talented. And then there are entire categories of gifts and talents that we know that we'll never attain. So we convince ourselves that, well, those things must not be very important. Maybe not as important as what we do. We, we compare ourselves to each other in everything we do so that everything that we do and every, every sin we commit is a product of our pride and of our self-love. Now, now bring all of this into the context of the various callings and gifts in the church and think about how foolish it is to take pride in a gift that you were given, to be prideful over something you had no role in obtaining or keeping. Again, let's let's just pull a few out. Let's say God gave you the ability to think clearly about numbers and finances. You are skilled at managing money. You're clearly gifted in that area. We could all use your help and you would benefit a, a lot of people by serving them. But You can't be prideful and arrogant about that. Say you have a gift of discernment that you're good at telling when when something's up, when something's wrong. You can see someone hurting or struggling when everyone else thinks everything is fine. You can point that out and you can empathize and you can help. You You have a gift. Don't think that the rest of us are calloused or uncaring. And don't think that if we were all like you, we would all be better off. If we were all like you, emphasizing the things that you emphasize, good at what you are good at, then how would you be special? How would you, how would you be, uh, have anything to offer that the rest couldn't? We can think of a thousand examples, but you, you, I think you understand the point. We can't spend our lives both jealous at those who have things we don't have, looking down our noses at those who don't have what we have, thinking ourselves better than another, worrying that others are better than us, um, constantly constantly caught in this ranking and, and um, stratification that is going on in this church in, in Corinth. That's what Paul rebukes. And so very three, uh, three very short things, very quick to remember, three things to take away. First, all of your talents, all of the things that make you who you are, all of the things that you have to bring to the table, those are God's gifts to you, which means if they are gifts, 
There's no room for pride. You didn't earn them. You don't deserve them. You can't take credit for them. Even if you worked hard at those things you were skilled at, who made your work prosper? Who gave you those opportunities? When you're tempted to think more highly of yourself than you ought, remember you're taking personal credit for gifts that God has kindly given to you. Secondly, your gifts are an important part, but a small part of the whole body. The church requires a lot of gifts and a lot of talents and a lot of skills. And I only have one or two, and maybe you have five or six, but we, none, not one, one of us is it. Uh, nobody wants to hear a French horn by itself. Nobody wants to hear an orchestra without the French horn. Delight in the gifts of other people. Be proud of them and rejoice that you can be around such a diversely talented people. Give thanks that God has so skillfully equipped his people. And third, it, it, it isn't uh, the fact that uh, you've been gifted, but how you use that gift and that resource that brings glory to Jesus. You can be a gifted musician or a talented writer, but if you don't use it, or if you only use it in selfish, prideful ways, where's the glory or the honor in that? Much more useful is the one who can do the modest things, the, the menial things, who can uh, do wonderful things with just very little. The things we take for granted, they're laying up treasure in heaven. You, church, are a body with all the gifts, with all the faculties, with all the parts. Like an orchestra, each person, each musician must play his or her part. Bring your instrument. Don't leave it at home. Bring it. Sit down and join the symphony. Don't just, don't just go to church. Be the church. Be the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for equipping your church. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in giving us everything that we need to do for our mission. Father, encourage us and give us strength by your Holy Spirit. We would shrink back from using the things that you have given us, the ways that you have provided for us, but that we would jump in with both feet and be encouraged by your Holy Spirit. Father, strengthen every one of us in this way. In Jesus' name. Amen.